welcome to the 12th episode of the Talent Intelligence Collective podcast. Before I intro this one, I wanted to remind you about an offer to all of our listeners from our sponsor, Stratagems. If you go to stratagems.com, that's S-T-R-A-T-I-G-E-N-S.com, book a demo and enter the promotional code TIC2021, you'll get a discount and a free proof of concept. Anyway, back to the episode. In this one, me, Alan Walker, Alison Etheridge, and Nick Brooks co-hosted an episode where we spoke to Eric Muskowitz of Modern Executive Solutions. Amongst other things, he talked about his earlier career as a reporter for Bloomberg and how this set him up with some of the key skills needed for a role in talent intelligence. And we got into a deep conversation about the power of qualitative research. Oh, and Toby couldn't join us as he'd taken up short-term residence in a bathroom. Something to do with a neurovirus. So, although Toby wasn't having a good time when we recorded this, you should whilst you're listening to it. Have fun! Before we get on with the main event, I just wanted to remind you that this podcast is proudly sponsored by our friends at Stratagens, and here's a very well-spoken chat to tell you a little bit more about them. Stratagens gives HR leaders the data they need to transform businesses with the speed and ease required in today's world. If you're ready to make decisions that aren't lengthy, costly, one-dimensional, or based on gut feeling, visit stratagens.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-I-G-E-N-S dot com to register for a Wednesday demo drop-in and find out more. Hello, I'm Alan Walker and welcome to episode 12. That's episode 12 of the Talent Intelligence Collective podcast. Yay! I'm delighted as ever to be joined by my co-host Nick Brooks of Microsoft and Alison Etridge of Talent Intuition. Say hello, guys. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Unfortunately, Toby has picked up a neurovirus and uh, for obvious reasons, we prefer not to take part in this podcast from his bathroom. So we do, however, as usual, have a fantastic guest with us. And this time it's Eric Moskowitz of Modern Executive Solutions. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Why don't you quickly introduce yourself to our audience? Great. Thank you so much. Um, again, Eric Moskowitz. I um, reside in New York with my family. Um and um, I'm a partner with a new firm called Modern Executive Solutions, hell of a name I know. And um, we are a bunch of um, partners and senior leaders from some of the big search firms and talent consulting firms you may have heard of, like Corn Ferry, Hydric Struggles, et cetera. Uh, we've been in business for about five or six months and so far so good. Prior to that, I was a former business journalist and investigative reporter for a number of publications, including Bloomberg, and uh, really happy to be here and hope I can... Uh, Add some value to the podcast. How exciting. I'm certainly looking forward to hearing more about, about the new business, as I'm sure are my co-hosts and listeners. Um, so I think most of us are fairly familiar with the format of the show, but, but for your benefit, Eric, um, in just a minute, in Toby's absence, I'll try and do my best to lead us through the news section, highlighting the compelling and the kind of thought-inducing hot topics that are happening around TI at the moment uh, that we'll all get involved in and have a conversation around. Then um, then I'll grab a coffee and put my feet up for a little bit whilst Nick and Alison fire questions at you, Eric, um, about your career and views on all things TI. So are we uh, are we happy to proceed, guys? Absolutely. Wonderful. So this, this is normally where I go, Toby, you're up first. What's happening in the world of TI? But instead, I'm going to do this. And um, I'm going to caveat all of this. Toby, TI God, understands everything he talks about in the news. Me? random podcast host pretending to understand things so 
bear with me, audience. So first bit of news that um, that we came across, and um, and Toby found these for us. He managed to do that this morning. Um, there's an interesting piece around US workforce volatility in that it's um, the spikes at the moment, it's nearly 70% in quarter two of 2021. And that's according to Workforce Logic's latest predictive benchmark report. Now, how they get to that figure is quite complicated in terms of the algorithm around it. But in terms of that volatility piece spiking at 70%, it's it's kind of incredible. Um, some of the numbers that they talk about is the fact that the that's causing this unemployment rate is right down. It's um, 5.9% in the US um, at the end of June, which is down nearly 50% year on year. And they give a nice breakdown of it, almost every job category in the US and then rank them based on this volatility metric. And every single category in the top five has showed significant increase. And in fact, finance, which is the normally the least volatile job category, was up. 47%, um, which whereas in was in quarter one of 2021, um, 70% of the category has shown some improvement, but now everything's up. So it's kind of crazily volatile at the moment. I think this is a really interesting one because they looked, um, you know, I, I, I guess if you ask people, what would you say are the most volatile sectors? Um, the, the ones that they talk about, and this is all about change, right? The ones that mm. they talk about would not be the ones I think that we would all say are are the ones that they raise or their, their findings are. Um, so this is a new platform. It's called Workforce Logic, I think. Yeah, um, that's right. And, and they um, they talk, which I, I guess is based on um, job job adverts and demand. But they talk about public safety. They talk about skilled trade, and they talk about the military. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I and I'm making a massive assumption here. But if you said to me, what are the most volatile, you know, kind of sub functions? None of those three would leap to mind. And I just think no. that that's really fascinating. I think I, I drilled down into the report in a bit more detail. And and though I think those, the relative volatility versus the more volatile areas isn't necessarily yeah. that high. It's how much they've increased by, which okay. is bonkers, um, particularly public safety. I think there's a, something like a 300% change between Q1 and Q2. Wow. That's yeah, I think, I, I think the, the theory here in the US is that People have been sitting at home, and now that they are able to run away by plane, bus, train, car, what have you, that they're doing it, right? Like mm. They don't want to wait any longer, and they want to take that big trip that they were dreaming about for the last 15 months. And, you know, for example, uh, my kids go to summer camp here in the U.S. in the Northeast, and they, the camps are closing because they cannot find enough counselors to work there all summer. They're just not even showing up um, to the camp. Um, yeah. They're just, <laughs> they're not being responsible is one way of looking at it. But at the, on the other hand, whether it's you know more mature industries like military or, or a federal government agency, um, but even in the, in the entry level positions, people are you know maybe getting stipends from the government. Um, and that's, that's a carrot that gives them enough money to sort of do something else for three months or a month or six weeks. But you know, it, it, it's all across the board, not just in the more mature, uh, you know, stable industries. It, it's really all over the place. And, and it's and it's pretty shocking, but also not super surprising. I, I mean, you know, I have, a, I have an 18 year old and they're just going they've been stir crazy and they want to live their lives and, and, and almost like on steroids now. Right. They want to make mm -hmm. up for lost time. And I think even people in the workforce or older feel the same way. Wow. People are just reframing their life, aren't they? They're looking yeah. and, and reprioritizing what's important to them.
Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And the other piece is around the the feeding frenzy we're seeing of companies offering truly flexible and remote work. So there's a lot of folks who are kind of looking back at their past life pre-pandemic and saying, hey, there are other options and opportunities available. So I know in that report, they talk about the great resignation period. We're seeing a massive shift in the corporate world of of people wanting to move to, to new organizations, industries, companies that offer that flexibility. And I think if you look at finance, um, and, and Eric, you could probably talk a lot more in, in detail about this, but um, the a lot of the banks in the US um, have shown some level of resistance towards hybrid and wanting to get back to the workplace. So there may be many employees there in that sector who are now kind of questioning their positions. So there's, there's kind of that skew on both the demand side, but also like supply almost flooding the market from some industry shifts that we may see towards big tech, for example. Um, but it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's super interesting as you pointed out, Alison, the, the industries, I guess, or the sectors that were covered in, in this um, report. Yeah, and yeah. I guess a whole host of it is people who have been um, kind of at the front end, isn't it? You know, if we think about public safety in particular and the military, you know, they've kind of been at the front end of the pandemic. Um, and you can absolutely understand why there would need to be a rethink there. And then you've got the other sectors where, you know, finance is a great example where there's resistance to hybrid working and people going, well, hold on a minute. You know, it was okay 12 months ago for me to do it. Why on earth do you suddenly think that that should be any different? Um, and, and big corporates that aren't kind of playing the game are going to find the next six to nine months really hard, I think. Yeah, and financial services, they are definitely the most draconian in terms of going back to work. I'd say most finan- big financial services, banks, private equity firms are either back in the office full time or will be after Labor Day in the U.S. And you know, therefore, there's a lot of people who are like, well, I don't know if I want to spend 80 or 90 hours a week doing that anymore. You know, I think they're reassessing what's important. Is it making, you know, a maximum income or is it having a higher quality of life? And whether that's right or wrong over the long term for their careers, um, that's something that these big firms need to are, are considering and probably reevaluating right now, because obviously they you look at technology firms that are going mostly fully remote or at least, you know, work 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 hybrid or home hybrid first so it's an interesting time for those firms and, and it'll be interesting from an attraction and retention point of view of their key talent what's going to happen to them over the next six months and we're, we're watching that really closely really yeah, one thing i found really interesting was as well as doing the analysis by by sector they also did it by state in the u.s and there was an interesting correlation between vaccination rates and employment volatility by state. So i.e. the lower the vaccination rate, the higher the employment volatility. And it's a, there's a really obvious correlation on the chart that they presented between the two. Whether that's causation, who knows, but there's certainly a correlation between the data, which is interesting. Mm. So the next bit of news... Uh... Sorry, what's that? I said, what else have we got, Alan? Sorry. Yeah, I was just about to tell us. more headlines. There you go. (laughs) So the next bit that Toby's put put on our radar is um, around um, Saudi Arabia. So they've seen an 87% drop in foreigners leaving leaving the job market. So um, Saudi Arabia saw 17,000 foreigners leave the labor market during the first quarter, compared to 137,000 between the third and fourth quarters of last year. Um, so that's a decline of less of more than eighty seven percent. I what I found more interesting about this, and something I never knew about Saudi Arabia, I knew they had a relatively large um, foreign worker um, work, um, labor base, 
but they 6.65 million of the workers in Saudi Arabia are, are foreign workers. And again, yeah. you know, I, I wasn't really sure of the context there, not knowing exactly how big Saudi Arabia is, but they make up something like 70% of the workforce. Wow. Which is incredible. Wow. Yeah, the, the yeah. country's population, isn't it? About 35 million, I think. The yeah, total sure. population, not even yeah. workforce, right? Um, so that's, yeah, that that's a very high percentage. So I thought that was wow, interesting. I don't really mean in the context of this particular podcast, but I thought it was an interesting bit of data that um, that Toby had found for us. Yeah, and it's inter- I'm not sure there's, I think there's a whole bunch of more questions you'd want to get out of it. You know, why are they staying? What's, you know, what are the major industries? Yeah, and what are the industries doing that means it's changing or not changing? And and how has, you know, has hybrid work, work working, for example, been a thing in Saudi Arabia or have they just kept offices open through? I, I don't know enough about what has happened there to comment in an intelligent fashion, I don't think. No, me neither. Okay, let's skip to the next one then. Yeah, the next one, okay. Yeah, the next one is much more relevant, and I think this will certainly appeal to to you, Alison. Um, that um, in the Lagos state government has um, revealed that it's formulating a data system for the labour market, um, as well as scaling up um, skill development capacity um, across Lagos state, basically. This is my most favourite article of the month, without a doubt. It's just, <laughs> you know. It, it, we kind of waffle on quite a lot about how labour market analytics affect everything from foreign direct investment into a business to your ability to attract startups and scale ups, you know, and and the impact that this has on your country as a whole, particularly in the tech space, is huge. Um, and I just think it's really exciting that the government is going. Hold on a minute, how do we do this? Um, and and what I'm hoping we'll see, and this kind of ties in a little bit to to one of the other articles. What I'm hoping we'll see is that there's this bridging gap between um, education, youth unemployment, mm. um, uh, demand for skills <laughs> and job job creation, because actually, if they can get that right, there's a really interesting opportunity for Lagos, I think. So for the relatively uninitiated, Alison, by them doing this and, and creating this data system for the labour market, does that does that quantify things basically for people looking to come into that particular market open offices hire etc etc yeah i think a better understanding of what that labor market looks like and it's much more measurable yeah so i i guess it depends a little bit on on the data that they're going to gather and they don't really tell us much about that but um there's something about um lots of governments gather um quite aggregated data around their workforces um, with a real focus actually on blue collar data in particular, um, and not necessarily through a skills lens. And so, if you think about um, a business that's looking to kind of um, grow anywhere in the world, what, one of the things that they will look at is business risk. They'll look at economic risk. They'll look at grants available from um, from country, mm. um, and they should be looking at skills availability to grow their business. Um, and I, I, it's really neat that Lagos are then talking about, um, yeah, being able to quantify the skills that they have in their business and also in, in their country and also how they're going to close the gap. Um, because you know, we hear all the time about this gap between education and what business actually needs and demands. Um, and this could be a really useful way of them understanding what they need to do in order to drive job creation. 
So something that caught my eye, which sounds really unique, is the um, connection to the tax ID. So yeah. in theory, they can look at the cost or the value of skills, and they can also look at things like um, compensation inequities across different kind of um, talent pools and, and skill divides. So that's really fascinating. It's almost like the IRS coming together with a labor market vendor in the US and really looking at like what is the material impact on wealth creation and earnings tied to skills and development programs and availability. So that that caught my eye and I'm not really aware of any other kind of systems at large taking that type of government financial data, i.e. taxation and earnings data um, in, in conjunction with, with skills and workforce. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I think Singapore did something, didn't they? So Singapore did something similar. And I don't know whether or not they looked at the um, tax status so they were able to quantify economic impact, but it wouldn't surprise me if they did. But I, yeah, I, I'm with you. No, no platforms um, are, are looking at that. Um, I think it'd be pretty hard to get the IRS to play with us um, or, <laughs> or UK Gov. For um, but to do it at a country level is, yeah economic benefit how do we drive this and how does it lead to i guess sustained growth it it smacks of a long-term approach to labor market and not a short-term fix which i think is what's quite interesting and i think to your point it feeds in it feeds into being able to encourage kids into the right careers or into careers that are going to pay them correctly and, and help them go on the right learning path which leads nicely into the the last bit of news that we wanted to discuss and and sum up was around this piece that there's a certain level of hypocrisy of the UK youth labour market. So this is an article in FE News, which is a news channel for the future of education. And um, it states that many young people are not taught core language, maths and computer skills. And as a result of that, school leavers are, well, they're ill-equipped for the language, for the challenges that await them um, in the big wide world of work. Um, and we're seeing that, that there's a massive disconnect between the education system and the job market. Now, for me, somebody who's worked in recruitment for about 20 years, that's not a major surprise to hear. Um, but it's the, the fact that we still haven't tackled those things, given the amount of information that's readily available. It's, it's, it's kind of a bit of a shock to me. And that you know, we try and position ourselves as being quite progressive as a nation in the UK. UK. Um, but our education system is still fairly traditional and it's kind of reactive rather than being particularly progressive. Yeah, there were two yeah. things that jumped out at me when I read this. Um, so one so one a bit linked linked to what you're saying, Alan, is really, you know, why on earth is this newsworthy? We've we've kind of known this for for a really long time. And that's not dismissing the article, it's just mm. you know, this is not new. We've been talking about this gap for ages and ages and ages. And um, if I, I'll put it into context. So I don't know quite what this exam is called now, but the common entrance exam that I took some 30 years ago, 32 years ago, is exactly the same today as it was 32 years ago. And yet the skills that you need now are completely different. Yeah, so it's just like, really? You know, what on earth needs to change in the curriculum to, to kind of help help the government see the difference? And then the second thing that smacked me was they talked about three ways to implement sustainable change. And the first two were about employees changing and not about changing the UK syllabus to reflect what's going on in the job market. And it was like, oh, um, yeah, that, that almost kind of sums up the circular frustration that we sit in, I think. 
Absolutely. Is this a similar problem in the US, Eric? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, yes. Um, I have um, I have a, a couple kids myself in the public school system, and um, yeah, I, I'd say it mirrors it almost exactly. And I, it frustrates me based on the recruiting market, and I know what job skills and characteristics sell in the market and where the demand is for roles, especially in technical roles. And it is not being taught in the U.S. public school system. You would have to take extracurricular classes or things like that. Um, obviously, there are exceptions. Um, there are some great public schools there. But I, I'd say even the private schools um, fail in many instances to properly be technical um, based on where the job market is. Um, there's definitely a disconnect. And being, being kind to the world of... Sorry, go on, Alison. I was just going to say, also, yeah, the world has changed so much, right? And, and as it keeps changing and as technology keeps advancing, the skills that we're going to need are much softer skills than some of the basic skills that they're talking about here. So it's almost as if we, we need to leapfrog away from almost the basic numeracy to actually how do you make decisions? How do you explore problem solving? Yeah, How do you get to an answer and not what is the answer? It's kind of the process of how you get there because – that's what businesses of the future are going to be, right? It's all going to be about looking at the data and reading data and taking analysis and insight from it um, as much as it will be about putting a widget on a thing. Um, and I think yeah, there, there are massive catch-ups to go. And, and I talked about Singapore earlier. Actually, it feels to me like they are a step ahead um, on a whole bunch of this stuff and looking at what business needs in, and then making sure they've got a labour market that can fulfil that. And to your point, Alison, the, the big opportunity, so you've got the like critical thinking and analysis type skills that are very much yeah. applied, right? And then what about emotional intelligence? And what about, you mentioned soft skills, like how do we prepare the next generation to, to operate and think in different ways and, and obviously hit the workforce with a very different perspective? So there's kind of, there's, there's that piece as well around kind of the emotional intelligence and um, thinking about inclusive um, kind of behaviors in the workplace over time. So um, yeah, I think there's there's a fundamental redesign that really needs to happen. It's been talked about for so long, but we're just not really seeing it. Um, but what some things we are seeing, especially in the UK, is a lot of um, technical colleges that are starting to do partnerships with the public sector and offer internships and placements and very much more uh, vocationally aligned curriculum. So you go and study computer science or a watered down version of, and it's in conjunction with a large tech company. So you can see kind of the application of your work, not just the theoretical side. Um, but that's in very short supply still. I think more needs to happen. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's a fundamental redesign of education. I think really needs to get kickstarted. It has to be said because you could organize. you could chase particular skills. So you could say let's train people in how to develop in Python, for example. But the problem is, by the time Python's probably a terrible example. But let's say a, a skill only has a certain shelf life. That kind of hard skill. So you could start at eleven and finish at sixteen learning that skill. But by the time they've learned it and they go into the labour market, it might not be relevant anymore. But all of those other things like critical thinking, being analytical and empathy and emotional intelligence, there's much yeah. longer shelf life on those things. They're almost a, a forever thing. So it's definitely a balancing act. Yeah. Yeah. And it is worth noting that yeah, organisations like you know, like Microsoft, Nick, and you know, I'll kind of blow your trumpet for you a little bit, are doing a whole bunch of stuff in this area to try and kind of promote learning and development and creating partnerships. 
yeah, so it's not that the, the big corporates aren't trying, they really are. Um, it's just there needs to be a bigger fundamental shift and somebody needs to be brave enough to do it. Agreed, yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, guys, that's, that's enough of the news. I can uh, take a deep sigh and relax for a moment. And whilst you, Alison and Nick, uh, chat to our guest, Eric, um, we've heard Eric's views on what's happening in the world, but now we want to know more about what's happening in his world. So I think it's time for... You two, um, our interview uh, extraordinaires, to step up to the plate. So, Alison, Nick, over to you. Cool. Um, so, I'm going to kick off, but actually, this is a Nick and Alison question, really. Both <laughs> of us absolutely love the fact that you used to be a reporter and a reporter for Bloomberg. Um, and, and I'd love to, A, hear more about that um, and kind of what you focused on. And then... B, understand how on earth that then led you into this world. And then C, understand what are the learnings that you kind of bring from that. And I'll try and write down A, B and C so I remember them, but I'm hoping Nick will, if not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll do, I'll do my best here, Alison. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I, I started in journalism um, in college and uh, just kept going with it. Um, I, you know, I appreciated um, the importance of, of keeping, whether it's big government or corporations in check. I think even now more than ever, I mean, this is 20 plus years ago, but um, now more than ever that, as you can see, if you look at Russia, for example, versus the US and a strong fourth estate, the, the value of it, right? I mean, there's gotta be somebody there um, to, to keep people in line. Uh, I think it's incredibly important to society. And, you know, I was mostly a business journalist um, working for Bloomberg, um, thestreet.com. I wrote for the Wall Street Journal, among other publications. And, um, you know, it was a great experience. And, um, you know, what I learned there was how to ask the right question and to sometimes know what the answer is before I even ask it to somebody I talked to in the marketplace. So that elicits the kind of conversation uh, in many instances that I have brought to the table when it comes to what I do now, which is, you know, officially I'm a partner at a, at a new search firm, but I spent 11 years um, building out the global research and, and talent intelligence or Market Intelligence is what we called it, a group at uh, Corn Ferry, which is the world's largest executive search and talent consulting world based in Los Angeles, but obviously offices all over the world. Um, I built out a practice of about 90 people who were doing not only um, re desk research, but getting on the phone and talking to people and eliciting information that would be deemed proprietary and putting the secondary and proprietary research together um, by asking the right forensic questions in the market. So that was, so I sort of built a team of mini journalists who are not trying to do right stories, but trying to elicit information that our clients would find interesting, obviously on an anonymous basis because of the fact that some of this information was a little sensitive. But so to answer your, I think first or, and or second question, the forensic lens yeah. that you take as an, in your approach to being a day-to-day -day journalist, whether it's business or otherwise, is the same kind of skill set you need to be in the business I'm, I am now, which is talent consulting. Um, and when I say talent consulting, just to explain it to the audience, um, if you think of like McKinsey, they do strategy consulting for companies. We do, we're basically, you know, what I like to say is, um, you know, at Corn Ferry or now at Modern is we are the McKinsey for people. So we are trying to figure out how clients should align their talent, what type of talent they should hire, what their competitors look like from an outside in perspective in certain areas, whether it's finance, their risk division, uh, their cyber division, um, what kind of digital transformation can they take from a customer experience point of view, for example? Like if you look at some of the work we do with some of the global banks, it, it's around 
their their digital journey and how they can have a consistent approach to all their omni-channel uh, omni channels that touch their their customers. And that's still you know a big problem for certain companies, banks, um, insurers. You know, having that footprint that is consistent across all their channels, whether it's mobile app, web, customer service on the phone still. All that stuff has to be consistent and the information has to be there from an intelligence point of view, um, but also a digital and analytical point of view. So there's there's a lot of overlap and, and I find it fascinating to talk to clients on a regular basis about some of these subjects, but it all comes down to some of the basic building blocks that I, that I built over a decade plus career as a journalist. I love that. I, I, I like the idea of a team of mini journalists. We, we always say that um, in our qual research team, the stuff that makes them really good is the fact that they are fundamentally nosy. And so when when somebody you know, answers a question, they you know their, their next question is why or what happens then? You know, it's right. just this incessant quest for knowledge. Yeah, I mean that inquisitiveness is in my top three. You know, I I, I hired dozens and dozens of people over my years, especially at Corn Ferry, and yeah, inquisitiveness and and being proactive and leaning in and and. Um, and thinking that there's no stupid question, as long as somebody, his, him or her, whether it's internally or externally, has the time, there are no stupid questions. And, you know, you're, may, you might ask the wrong question, but eventually you're going to get to the right answer. And I think taking that approach is a great skill set in anything you do, you know. So as a, a takeaway for the audience, I think, you know, never being afraid to ask a question, no matter where that person in your, your perception, you think they sit in a hierarchical point of view. People are surprisingly receptive. And then most importantly is being a good listener. Don't ask too many questions. Let somebody expound on what they're trying to say to you, because ultimately that's sometimes how you can get to where you want to go um, by steering them and then just shutting up and letting, letting him or her talk. So those are some of the th things I picked up over the years that I found super helpful. I, Eric, I love this because I'm a, a big, big fan of qual research and, and primary and human intelligence. And I, I have a fundamental belief. It, it's one of the most underutilized capabilities in this world and this function. I think there's a lot of um, focus around obviously large scale data sets and more of the quant side of things. So, but it's, it's a, a very, um, it, it's a skill, right? Like you say, intently listening, understanding the five whys technique, how you position your questions. So, um, my question to you is, in your experience over the years being in, in heavy search, what are some of the best primary intelligence or human intelligence gathering practices that you've seen or established? And that might be things like information and source reliability or credibility, or to your point, like getting deeper in the types of questions that you ask and extracting the information and then how you think about it. But yeah, any, anything that you've kind of seen or um, delivered over the years in terms of great practices you could share with our listeners? Yeah, no, I think whether you're working in a large scale information gathering environment or a smaller scale, um, consistent collection of information by asking a consistent set of questions to us, whether I was working at the biggest search firm or now in a much smaller fledgling operation, um, having our teams ask the same questions in the market is super important. Um, and then even more important, and surprisingly, this is probably the biggest problem in most companies that I've ever worked with is the data integrity side on the back end and making sure that people, no matter how mundane any worker thinks it is, including myself, getting that data and consistently into whatever CRM you're using, to me, I think is the most important thing in terms of talent intelligence in any initiative that I've built in the last 15 years. Uh, it's, it, it's always a struggle. 
and there's certain people, especially who are a little bit more, um, have a few more gray hairs than, than a bunch of us, of course, that don't get it. You know, they're just writing it on a resume still, or they're they're collecting it on a notepad. You know, so you know, sometimes it's banging their heads, yeah, literally against the wall and saying, "We need," you know, "This is going to help you." And trying to get their buy-in and stakeholder support. Let's say for a, you know, a vice chairman at Corn Ferry who's been doing that for 25 years a certain way, and it works for them and they're making money. But how are they going to help the larger practice? And so one of my big remits um, there, and and, and I guess at, um, now in modern, I've only been there, you know, five or six months. That's how, how long the firm's been around. Um, is, is making sure everyone is aligned to what we are trying to achieve and, and hammering that home on a, you know, I'd say 10 times, you know, over like the first three months and making sure people really get it and see the value for them. If they don't see the value for them, um, it's not going to work. And that's, a, that's been a struggle for me and, and for anyone I've ever talked to is the consist, consistent data collection around making sure people are continually asking those right questions that we need answered for a client or for just general, you know, uh, data collection information. Eric, that's, that's really interesting. Oh, sorry, Alison. Sorry. Just a quick follow-up question, because I know if Toby was on the the podcast right now, he'd be jumping out of his chair. Because we've talked about this a lot: the uh, the integrity with regard to using a CRM and collecting the information in a consistent way, and um, that that's been one of the greatest challenges. But I love the way that you frame that is being um, aligned around a common goal and strategy, right? And that's how I've thought about it in the past. It's the, the individuals that you're working with ensure that they know the intrinsic value of that information. Where does it go? How is it used? And how is it going to further their impact in their work as an educational opportunity to, to show this is why it's important that we collect the information in such a way? Um, what, to what degree of success have you kind of seen over the years, Eric, in terms of like consistent collection practices? Yeah, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. Sorry. Um, no, no. At, at a firm like Corn Ferry, I got to say, I was only, I'd say I had mixed success. I was told when I first joined there in 2010 that if you were 50% successful in these new initiatives that I was trying to enact, that would be an accomplishment. And I think I got to about 60 or 70%, but I didn't get all the way there. I mean, it's a big organization um, to align everyone to this common data integrity goal, I would say is probably impossible. Um, we started a collective intelligence unit that would collect um, secondary or desk research data on top of the proprietary data to sort of buttress it. Um, of course, COVID hit, and then we, um, we we got rid of a lot of that group, unfortunately. Um, Corn Ferry being a public company, I'll, I'll stop talking about that subject so I don't get in trouble. But that was a very <laughs> difficult time for, and, and for obviously a very difficult, difficult time for a lot of companies. But we, we walked away from a lot of the talent in the intelligence initiatives that we had put in place. Um, because at the end of the day, you have to show some ROI, right? So all this is is well and good, um, but if you don't show the ROI to any type of corporate leader that you're working with, then it becomes a question mark. And I'm sure everyone who's listening and and, and Toby would agree from his past day at, at a big corporate that um, that is a tough sell and you have to do that regularly and you have to be unique in what you say each time around. These are the new data sets that we're collecting, and this has helped us win XYZ business. And if you don't explain it like that, you you could have the most amazing visuals, but if it's, there's no dollars attached to it, it becomes a problem. Yep. Yeah. Thank you for being candid. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's a big big thing to tackle, isn't it? But such an un underutilized opportunity. Yeah, and I, I would I would I wanted to say before I forgot that the the opportunity this year 2021 is bigger than I've ever seen. 
Because if you look at the talent consulting mm -hmm. business or, or executive search, it's very transactional. Strategic consulting at the big accounting and consulting firms is very transactional. Um, what clients really need is, is somebody to hold their hand from on a strategic advisor point of view and work with them and not have a dollar attached to it, but maybe have other work being done. But they, you know, I find with the Fortune you know, 250 clients that we're working with, you know, they, they saw such a disbursement in their workforces or they had to have restructurings or voluntary buyouts that they need a lot of help building everything back up and they can't do it. What, no matter how good the HRBPs, human resource business partners are in a certain area, or even talent acquisition heads and, and regional heads, um, they need a lot of help and they're really beleaguered and they're under a lot of pressure. And, and that's where I feel like there's huge opportunity um, for talent intelligence, right? To work with them strategically um, and not worry about placing someone or, or doing a project. It's really about helping them and what's keeping them up at night. So those are kind of the things I'm seeing as a real opportunity, not just for us here at Modern, but you know, in general, I think I think companies are struggling with their talent remits, and and you know, I, you know, so 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 I think the talent intelligence overall for anyone listening is, is a, has a lot of upside right now, and I haven't seen it like this in years. Great perspective. Yeah, completely agree. I think one of the things that's interesting about you, you you've just talked about Eric um, for me is that you use the phrase. I've built a team of mini journalists to find data or intelligence that clients would find interesting. And that implies that it's kind of a proactive push of intelligence and insight to the client rather than the client commissioning a specific report from you. Is that is that fair to say or actually is, is that shifting in, in the opportunity in today's world? Yeah, I think in the consulting business, you always want to have something to say. So you never know when yep. you might need that information. Um, you know, you might have to pitch for a project or a big CFO or CEO search. And if you don't have something to tell them that they don't already know, you know, you're just like everybody else. So whether it's here in, in a, my current iteration as a partner of Modern or at Corn Ferry, we'd always be in the background trying to dig out information, work on projects, um, have things kind of half-baked. So if we needed to run, we at least had a, a chance in hell versus no chance. And so, so mostly then at Modern, is the insight used to inform um, the, the overriding strategic consultancy that you're giving to people? Or are clients coming to you and saying, can you tell us about X? Or is that a combination of both? Yeah, it's a combination of both. It could be ad hoc project where they just need to look at, let's say, 10 of their competitors in a certain division and what's going on there. You know, in our case, obviously, it would be who's who's good. <laughs> who's diverse, obviously there's a huge diversity lens to everything we do here at our firm versus, um, you know, it's our one of our top priorities. But um, yeah, so it can be both. Um, in certain cases, we're on like kind of a retained basis with clients just to provide them with information in the market in certain areas, mostly in technology, right? So technology is so fast moving, people are moving all over the place right now. And whether it's InfoSec, which would be a, you know, chief information security officer or a head of product is a big role right now we're seeing. Um, you know, sorry, I'm getting into the weeds a bit, but, you know, I think the things that are very specific and nuanced that we can provide on a proactive basis, as well as provide kind of standalone ad hoc uh, reactive is kind of the blend I'm trying to build um, and what I had at Corn Ferry as well. And how similar to the KF model? Um is that, albeit I understand the, the concept is different actually, because it's, I love this kind of the McKinsey's for people piece. Yeah. But how different is the model? 
Well, the scales, the scale is probably the biggest difference. Uh, I was at a yeah. team of 90. Now we're at, a, you know, one and a half, two. So we're doing a lot more with less, I guess, is the way to put it. But it's been surprising what we've been able to accomplish. We're just working our butts off. I mean, new company and uh, very exciting. And we have a great list of clients. Uh, I hate tooting my own horn, but, you know, it, it's been really fun and exciting. But, we're, you know, working really hard and vacation has, has been an afterthought in the first six months. So hopefully I'll take a few days at the end of the summer, but, but it's been exciting and, and, and challenging. And I think that's what I wanted. And, um, and I think at Corn Ferry, um, the model was similar. The goal was similar here. I'm actually trying to make it own it, you know, and own the goal from end to end versus at Corn Ferry. There's so many moving parts, so many P and L's, um, and product areas that it was almost impossible to do the end to end. Um, I can only control so much. So here it's, trying to do something hopefully we'll get there so so far so good yeah and look as a ceo of a scale-up business i get that you know holiday, holidays are out um you know vacations don't happen um but the satisfaction that you get from seeing you know stuff work and stuff having an impact and being kind of all, almost closer to the cold face um particularly in some of the big enterprise businesses is just really exciting isn't it yeah i mean yeah there's a lot less layers right we're talking to the cfo and we're trying to help this I don't know, uh, uh, chief, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to be careful what I say here, but you know, the head of a retail bank, yeah, no. you know, and help them just on a day-to-day -day basis, work out a game plan that they can use with their key stakeholders, you know, and, and that's, that's always fun. I mean, that's, that's kind of the stuff I like the most, um, because it's actionable. We're providing value and, you know, sometimes it, it leads to obviously a lot of other opportunities for us. I'm not going to lie. Right. If we're in, in a strategic basis, it opened up the doors for all the transactional stuff that is the bread and butter of obviously what we're all trying to do. Is your entry point a business leader? Is your entry point CHRO? It's both. It could be both. Okay. It could be either or. Um, it really depends on where the pain point is. Really interesting. Sorry, Nick. I'll be quiet. I just took over again. <laughs> no worries. You're on a roll. Didn't want to get in the way. Um, so, Eric, I'm curious to know with these types of high touch client engagements, how you think about um, helping the client almost trig, uh, triage and diagnose either issues or opportunities in their business versus kind of what they see in the competition and the landscape at large. I'm imagining it's a combination of both, but do you have a kind of lean towards like looking at internal analysis of your clients first and then thinking about how the market opportunities could translate or is there anything you could share there? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I mean, thanks, Nick. I think it's the other way around. Um, we, we, we kind of like to go outside in, um, in in the sense that we don't want to pretend we know what's going to be, what's going to be the fix for them right away. So what we'll do is we'll look at the, external landscape for them on whatever the pain point is um, and show what best in class looks like, you know? So, you know, it's no surprise that, um, you know, Capital One or Amex or, you know, whatever very good customer experiences are relatively good or Chase even compared to, let's say another, another bank, which I won't name, but, you know, so there's certain best in class in anything we do, um, whether it's product, whether it's the customer experience, digital customer experience um, and, and what's their model. What's the operating model? How are they structured? Um, what's working? What doesn't work optimally? What things can you reappropriate to your situation that would help? Whether it's adding talent, whether it's adding a different type of operating model or structure, um, you know, maybe you're not appealing to certain audiences because you're not diverse enough in a certain area, right? Or maybe you're not hearing from all the voices you need to hear from. So, you know, sometimes it, you know it can be a little tricky, right? I mean, obviously. 
we don't want to be too pedantic or um, um, think we know everything. But it, it, it's you know if if the data is there, I guess to get back to what we're all trying to talk about, if the, there's a rich set of data that we can collect in the marketplace for for the client or the company, um, then it provides the type of deep insights that are going to be actionable, and that's what we try to get to in every assignment we do. Yeah, that that absolutely makes sense. And obviously. Sorry, Alison, go ahead. Keep going, Nick. No, no, you go. I was going to say something quite interesting about the kind of. We used to talk a little bit about um, kind of color of the market, and Eric, you talked, you touched on this earlier. You know, if you've got stuff in a resume, um, and it stays on a resume, then it's it's kind of got some impact for that search. But if you've got the same thing and you aggregate it over over yeah, 20, 30, 50, however many it is, different conversations, then you, you can kind of get this feel for what's the color of the market, what's really going on, what are the market movements that is, is incredibly powerful. And it, it feels as if that's what you're bringing to life for your clients at Modern. Yeah, and that's, it's all about data density. You're completely right, Alison. And, um, you know, and that gets back to asking a consistent set of questions. So if you ask a certain set of questions in the market 50 times, you're really going to have some interesting insights and that are going to be hopefully actionable to a client if that's what the remit is, um, or even find, you know, where the great, where, where the great talent may sit at a certain, you know, space, right? So whether it's, um, you know, like see, you know, where's the great finance talent, um, you know, at banks, you know, if we talk to 50 people and ask every one of them, you know, which, where do you want to go work next? So like, where's your dream job? Um, where, you know, if, if you know a certain person somewhere, um, you know, do they have great talent and why and what makes them tick? You know, and, and then that gets all back to the beginnings, which is journalism and asking the right questions and asking um, and doing your due diligence, I should say, before you even get on the phone with anyone. Right. So that's a that's a, an important thing I forgot to mention is if you don't know who you're talking to, and you haven't done like more homework than you think is necessary. And it's not just glancing at the LinkedIn while you're dialing uh, profile. Um, you might get yourself into trouble. You need to have something to tell them that's interesting. Otherwise, it's not going to elicit that the conversation is not going to elicit the type of data um, aggregation that you're looking for. So that was, you know, that's kind of an important part of the, all this this whole process. That's such a, a great perspective, Eric. I'm so on board with that. That doing your market intelligence due diligence before any prospect calls, right? Having a perspective understanding what the latest news or updates are that could be relevant to that person or that organization. And it just opens up the conversation in such a different way, right? Heightening credibility. So that's that's super powerful. Um, so I know we've talked a lot about Qual today and given your report a background in investigative uh, journalism totally makes sense. Um, but curious to know, um, do you think about other third-party data platforms, vendors, or solutions, or is the the real kind of sweet spot and the value of your organization about that first-party collection and the structuring of which? So, do you do you think about third-party tools, sources, data as well? Less so in our current iteration because we don't have the people power. But at, you know, at Corn Ferry, we I mean, we did set up this collective intelligence group where we mined a lot of data sources like Capital IQ. Um, um, we obviously had an API with our with our LinkedIn in, um, relationship, um, but what I was what I was going to get at is we use Power BI to aggregate big reams of data um, in certain areas, um, and we use some of our internal data as well, our, our internal CRM to mix with our our business development data and as well as collecting some data from external vendors. I mean, Capital IQ was best for us because it would give us size and scale 
of financials of, of all the companies we worked with, and that would be helpful, right? Because we want to know how many people sit in a certain division or who, how many they have in the U.S. versus EMEA. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Zoom Info is obviously great for contacts, as is Lucia. Um, LinkedIn's LinkedIn. Um, you know, I, I think, Nick, I saw that you were, had a talent insights background. I, I actually do think that's a pretty good tool these days. It's gotten better. I didn't like it two years ago, no offense, but I think it has gotten better and it has some value um, from, from my business perspective um, in terms of triangulated da triangulating data or people in, in a new way, which is interesting. Um, what else? I mean, PitchBook's fantastic um, as well. That's a really good resource for the private equity, venture capital, technology universe. Um, you know, I can go on and on. There's a lot of databases out there, but um, those are the kind of ones. Vortex is good from a diversity board lens as well. Those are probably our, my top four or five, um, to be honest with you. I don't know. Are there any others that you've heard of that you've heard good things about? Or, you know, there's the crunch bases, obviously, of the world, but yeah, what one of my personal favorites on the thread of financially focused tools was CB Insights many years ago, and just the the CEO and the types of thought leadership that they put out as well, and how they use their data is is just second to none. So if you haven't checked them out, um, at least get on the mailing list because it's uh, an answer well writes some pretty incredible thought leadership. But uh, but yeah, I think you um, we've talked about this before, Eric. It's um, Different tools, platforms, and data sources have different utility. It depends on the scenario, right? There are certain strengths of, for example, LinkedIn data in, in some markets and less so in others. So it's about kind of when you apply the right data set or the right tool and whether you'd use PitchBook or Mattermark if you're looking at kind of deep um, financials. But I think the power is about how you layer the right data and signals together. So I guess... Um, one kind of key question I have is how do you think about the correlation between some of those sources and then the primary intelligence and how do you, do you have a process of layering essentially or, uh, or is it really about when you're seeing the data, the signals align? Yeah, it's a little bit of both and it really is dependent on the project. So it's very situational, but it's a great question, uh, Nick. Um, you know, I think there are certain things that you need in the marketplace to show your your own size and scale. And I think by being able to sort of aggregate your own data, especially at a firm like Corn Ferry, which was the world's largest, you know, consult, you know, people consulting firm, um, we were never harnessing that properly. Whether it was compensation data, whether it was um, you know our placement data in certain sectors and and what we called functional areas. Um, and we were getting better at it and then COVID hit. But the bottom line is uh, that we use that as a layering device basically by, you know, 2019, 2020, uh, at least the first three months um, to, to, to a great extent. It was very valuable in when helping us win business to kind of quantify everything we were doing in the marketplace. And from a compensation point of view, you know, benchmarking comp better um, because we had so many data points. But we didn't get to where we wanted to get before we had to take a, a, a revert, uh, we had to go into reverse, unfortunately. But we were moving in that direction of layering and, 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 and that made a lot of sense to us. And I think that would have been effective if COVID didn't hit. Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of put a stake in many projects and initiatives, right? The world kind of went on pause all of a sudden while we figured out what to do next and where to go. But um, kind of tying that together to some of your earlier statements, one one big question I have really is, um, you talked about um, how the pandemic in the last year has almost accelerated the need and the value of talent intelligence. And I, I completely agree with you. I think just the ability to learn 
and, and gather more perspective and help customers and help businesses think through these challenges that are happening in real time. But um, beyond that, um, what is what does the future of talent intelligence look like for you, Eric? What are you excited about and whether that's within your organization or outside of? Um, yeah, love to hear more there. Well, the automation of data, it continues, um, you know, you know, AI is, 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 you know, enticing and kind of intriguing, but I haven't quite figured out like a lot of people in the talent intelligence space, how to um, manipulate it in a way that's going to be actionable and, and, and provide some ROI because it's expensive. Um, but some big corporations, and I'm sure Toby could speak to this a little bit better than I have, have had some success here. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I guess I'm a little old school when it comes to collecting information. I really do think a phone conversation um, or, what, or obviously a meeting in person over a drink, you know, that that's going to elicit a much better data set, I think, if I can use that term, than collecting data. What I do is the nuance in between the lines, what is actionable intelligence that's going to be valuable? And you can't really... It's very hard to collect that using secondary data. Um, it helps, don't get me wrong, for probably 30 to 50% of the equation, um, whether you're using LinkedIn uh, Insights or, or Zoom or CapIQ or, or what have you. Um, CB Insights is, is another good option. Um, but at the end of the day, um, what we're being paid for and what we're trying to provide, at least from my lens, and obviously this, this is just me and, and my universe, but... Um, it, it is really about those those conversations and tying them all together and having a narrative. So collecting a lot of data, centralizing that data, asking the same type of questions so that you can aggregate, aggregate it and spit it back out and, and blend it or layer it with secondary data that you're collecting on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and, and whether it's an ad hoc, proactive, um, so reactive or a proactive approach, um, both ways can work and, um, I'm going to stick with that until I, until I become a dinosaur. <laughs> so I'll, I'll stick with that line. Of thinking. And then, um, and then at a certain point, I'm sure technology will render me mute, moot, but, uh, but, um, but I think for now, I, I really do think, look, these big corporations that we work with have, will always have like a hundred X budget that I'll ever have, whether it was court Ferry or obviously what, where I'm at now. Um, so the bottom line is they don't know how to use it, even though they're spending ridiculous amounts of money on HR analytics tools. Um, what I'm trying to collect is going right to what they need, right? And there's some value there that is, you know, if anything, we probably undercharge for that because there's a lot of value to the talent intelligence if it's done right. Um, and we're still, I'm always working on making that better and more efficient. Um, but it's it's hard to do it with technology on a day-to-day -day basis, but I'd love to hear from the group, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm off in any way or, or if I'm missing something. No, um, I, I believe some of the oldest techniques are still some of the most powerful. And to your point, it's, it's solution orientated, customer solution orientated, right? You're solving challenges and bringing context to their, their real-time business needs. And you're doing so in a very, very high touch manner. At the end of the day, we're still dealing with people, right? So information integrity and how you interpret that information are as critical as the storytelling outputs and the guidance that you create, right? So I think automation and the aggregation of this information will get better and better and better over time. 
But there, there are the practices and the hygiene of how you collect it, interpret it, and then ultimately derive those narratives, which really need to be well established first. So Eric, I completely agree with you. And I think um, some of those techniques are absolutely, um, there's just an opportunity to use more and think more rigorously without always thinking, I need to go get a bigger data set. I need to think about the quantitative piece. Both can work in harmony exceptionally well and bring different pivots on the questions that you're trying to answer. But I think don't overlook that uh, that primary source of information and how you unlock it. So, um, Alan, uh, Alison, I don't know if you have any final remarks or questions for, for Eric. I, I, I don't have any final questions. I'm conscious there's a delay on the line, so I've been really quiet. But, um, you know, for, for me, I, I completely agree. You know, I, my background is qualitative research. I now run a business that is quant research that's supplemented by qual research. Because actually, um, data is going to get you so far, but you still need to draw insight from it. You still need to draw stories from it. Um, and you still need to you know, make sure that you're answering the real question and not just grabbing data for data's sake. And um, I, I guess it's time for me to step in. I don't have nothing to add or <laughs> any questions, Eric, that uh, that can add to the the big brains that are sat around this virtual table now. But what I am going to do is play party pooper. So I'm going to step in and draw things to a natural close. We uh, we can't keep talking forever. We do have to eventually say, let's stop. And I think this is a nice cut-off point. So, Eric, it's been incredible having you on the podcast. How did you find it? It was fantastic. I'm happy to do it. Anytime you you you, you, butt, you uh, tap me on the shoulder, I'm happy to do it again. And uh, thank you so much for having me. No problem at all. And uh, you know, as always... Pleasure. Without a doubt. As always, I want to thank each of you, Alison and Nick, for co-hosting um, our 12th Talent Intelligence Collective podcast. Um, a quick Ooh. get well soon to Toby. Um, we'll look forward to having you back for the next show. It's definitely not the same without you, particularly that news segment. And um, to our listeners, a huge thanks for, well, you know, kind of listening and supporting us and doing all the wonderful things you do to spread the word about the podcast. It's um, It's fantastic. And as ever... Cheesy sign of time. Stay intelligent, folks. Thank you. Thanks so Bye much. Bye bye. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Before you go, I wanted for the last time to remind you about our generous sponsor, Stratagens. Here's that posh chap again telling you about their fabulous product. Strategens gives HR leaders the data they need to transform businesses with the speed and ease required in today's world. If you're ready to make decisions that aren't lengthy, costly, one-dimensional, or based on gut feeling, visit strategens.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-I-G-E-N-S dot com to register for a Wednesday demo drop-in and find out more.